you can't bitch and complain about things that are unforeseen or something that you can't control when you're not even an individual that's taking control of the actions that you have the ability to control. Whatever your situation is currently is not your forever situation. That's really what real business owners is, man. Like, we don't care where you come from, where are you going? Our goal and our job is to reduce the mistakes that you have to make or the money that you have to lose. You want to be an entrepreneur, you want to be successful, don't give up. You learn, adjust, and continue to move forward. Welcome back to the Real Business Owners Podcast. This is Trevor Cowley. As always, Kel Goodman. What's up, everybody? Guys, today we have a, a local, a friend, uh, I would say a fellow gym goer, an early morning AMer. <laughs> you know, I see Nick and, well, I saw Nick and his wife for, you know, many, many years at the gym early, but now he's a new father. So they're trying to figure out how to weave the gym in together early mornings now I with see, the baby. Now I see him. Yeah, now, so now you see him. We go when the ballers go, bro. Oh, it's a what family. time do the ballers go? About nine. Nine? You guys sometimes, sometimes you're a sixer now. Nine. You're a niner. You went from six to nine. Huh? That seems pretty normal. That's for you. my joke, dude. Like, I tend yeah. to I tend to bounce back from six to nine. You, yeah, know, you yeah. just got to do any. You, you, you got to get it any time you can get it. Exactly. We got Nick Rustoption. 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 Nick is an immigrant from Russia, and he's came here to the U.S. and he's absolutely crushed it. You know, you've done an amazing job to come here and build a life for yourself that's better than individuals that actually were born here. And I think part of that is the fact that you've maybe have different perspectives than the average American because you've seen things obviously different or outside of them. So maybe they take for granted some of the things that are allotted to them and you come here and just see opportunity and know that the only thing between you and success is work. And that's what I see with a lot of people that came from another country. They, they say basically, so you're telling me the only thing I have to do to set myself apart is work harder than everybody else? Fucking done. And it seems as you've you basically taken that and ran with it because obviously you're always working, right? You're always making the next move. You're doing things outside of other agents in your industry to try to stay ahead of the curve. And I think that's super, super cool. So appreciate you coming on, bro. Appreciate you having me here. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me on your show. Yeah. I, uh, um, I was preparing for this. I was super excited to be on your podcast. And, you know, I, I appreciate the kind words that you said about me. And yeah. I feel like I was literally just having this conversation with my mom over the phone. So one of the greatest accomplishments that I felt, uh, you know, outside of getting my U.S. citizenship and jumping through some hoops to get there, my mom moved here as a teacher. So she she used to teach English in Russia, and then she came to teach Russian in the States. Uh, so I moved with her when I was just 10 years old. And what was, was kind of crazy, I was actually talking to my wife about this. Michonne has always hustled her entire life. Nothing was ever given to her on a silver platter. And she had some siblings that, you know, pretty much have a full ride by the parents. And I don't, I'm not knocking on the people. I have a lot of friends that were born with a trust fund and they're awesome friends to have because a, they have a boat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you're friends with um, them. Your suntan's always on. Yeah. You know, don't, always got something to do yeah. on the fucking weekend. You know? Don't, don't get me wrong. Like anybody that has, has had it made easy, right? Like their parents at some point, you're never more than like one or two generations away from somebody that created that trust. Mm. And, ultimately I'm, I'm guilty of it. Like I want to be that person for my daughter. I don't, I want for her to receive the same values without necessarily the same struggle. And that's the biggest disconnect. And I think that's the biggest mm -hmm. challenge as a parent, mm -hmm. but at the same time, 
sorry, getting back on, on track to my no, original I like thought. That. No, I like that though. So my wife and I were talking about it and she said she's had a number of jobs. Like she's done babysitting, cleaning companies, like anything you name it. By the time she was 16, she was paying for her first car and she had the opportunity to do that. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, you know what? I started getting into professional grind like as soon as I could, but I didn't become a naturalized, like a full on citizen. Like I had several visas and then I couldn't work until I turned 17. And it was like literally killing me because mm. I wanted to go out and make my own. My parents gave me, you know, everything they could, whatever they had. But at the same time, it's not like I could go out and buy my first car. And then I remember the day that I could go out and get a job. Mm. It was the most amazing feeling ever because I was like, look, the sky is literally the limit. If I go out and apply myself, and granted, nobody wants to hire a 17-year-old. You know, this was, <laughs> this was some time back. Yeah. And the economy was a little bit different. It was weird because I literally, I applied and I worked at temp services. Um I've gone to, and I didn't last at many jobs long at that time, just like any 17-year-old. And I was constantly trying to figure out how to maximize my time that I'm applying to to earning these dollars and cents. And I was never blown away in the very beginning. I was blown away by the opportunity, and Mm -hmm. the opportunities were truly endless. But then I would get down to myself and look at my paycheck and break it down. I'm like, really, I, I have to spend a lot of hours to, to get to where I need to be. So to I need to figure ahead, out yeah. how to make my hours either how to, A, how produce How do you maximize more. the yeah. hours to get more per hour, right? Exactly. That's really what it comes mm-hmm. down to. And then, you know, fast forward to the corporate world. And in the corporate world, I spent a little over a decade with Verizon Wireless. Uh, it was oh, a great company to work that. for. Yeah, yeah, I heard about that. I think we chatted about that once at the gym. So corporate America kind of took me all over the place. And it was a, it was a great place to start because in any business, I feel like you need to have structure. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people that jump into entrepreneurship, when they start working for themselves, running a business, they may be very passionate what they do. You know, somebody that is very passionate about baking cakes shouldn't necessarily always own a bakery, as cliche as it sounds. And you see a lot of people that are very, very good at that one skill that they want to monetize and turn into a business, but they don't have the background in running a business for somebody else. You know, right. sometimes it's a multi-million dollar company. Sometimes yeah. it's running any sort of a business. So then they let their passion get ahead of what makes sense for their business because they just don't know. Right. So I was fortunate enough to be able to run corporate business for Verizon for so long that now I could apply essentially the same concept and the concept mm-hmm. is not you know most genius things are pretty pretty simple so, yeah you, certain, you have to break it down to the simple yeah uh, how do you eat a watermelon right one slice at a time yeah Verizon must be pretty good at developing people because I've tried to recruit sales guys there several times over the years yeah this seems like uh I was always so- like dude every time I'd go in for a new <laughs> cell phone the dude was good and yeah. I was like dude you should I bet you can make more money working for me yeah but they wouldn't leave I was the yeah, guy. Huh? The I benefits, was the guy recruiting bro. those guys. It's yeah, the, <laughs> it's the benefits package, bro. They're like, dude, you make sixty, but you get benefits. Oh, better, okay. And I remember looking uh. in the back and seeing that they had a sales board up there, and I was like, ah, oh, dude, this is like, I need to get one of these guys. Yeah. I never yeah. did. I never did get no, one. That, but but I was always impressed. I was always impressed with it my. It was sales Verizon, right and what was the uh, what was the gym that we know? Like three or four of those dudes that came from the leadership uh, of of that gym, Kurt Livingston. Moderich, um, mm-hmm. who else was it? There was somebody else. There's a few. Uh, Tony, I think, uh, as that's, well. Uh, um, something. LA Fitness. LA Fitness. Yeah. They were producing some great leaders and some great salespeople as well. And I swear, Verizon and those they two, they have, they have a, a halfway decent 
structured program to actually produce, you know, they, individuals they like must you. incentivize well and train well. And I would say they had. So that was an interesting. That was, was the same thing with LA Fitness. It was like kind of fizzled had, after a while. There was an interesting shift, and the reason they had is in any sales environment and like any any area that I ever took over was the new benchmark. Not to pat myself on the back, but I'm sorry. You can pat Humble it. brag. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and at the very beginning when I got into that, so sorry, leading up to that career, I was very, I was terrified of losing that job. And that's kind of how the corporate America with huge emphasis on performance keeps you in, in, in any level of your position. Like never was my position a guarantee. Right. Any performance review was, hey, you've done excellent. We set the benchmark, but what more can you give us? Because if you can't give us any more, there's a number of applicants for your position. And it was probably like the most kind mm -hmm. way to have that conversation in most cases. Yeah. And if things weren't going well, that conversation was a lot more aggressive to a point where like, hey, your, your time with us here is limited and you need to let us know what it is that you're going to do to to make it less limited. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Um, so how are you going to buy more time? Motivate by fear. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And there were some, you know, it was it was a great company to work for. It gave you the structure and it gave you the ability to uh, have the acumen for which numbers matter to your business, which yeah. numbers help you advance, and which numbers get you off the radar from uh, your upper management. Or when you're upper management, then you look at, you know, perhaps numbers that are more prominent to, to the business immediately at hand. Mm -hmm. uh, and that kind of rolled down to all the way down to the front line. So yeah. from the very beginning when I was just a sales rep, the conversation every month, there were commission talks with the middle management, upper management, and you set the goal, you either exceed that goal or you get on the performance improvement plan. So in the last, like probably, I don't know, the last 10 years, most wireless companies got away from performance improvement plans. Yeah. And they just have sales reps that have team goals or these these goals that aren't really goals. And that was being talked about when I was still with the company. And I knew mm. that that type of system is is just going to lower your averages. Yeah. Mm. I would step into uh, sales environments anytime that I moved to a new location. I would have a performance talk with the team and I would have one-on-ones. And I would say, hey, if I gave you the recipe to hustle, the recipe to your success, I could double or triple your income. What would you do with the extra money? Yeah. And I don't want to break it down to like a regional thing, but wherever life was easier, like it's easier to survive in the South. Like if you're somewhere in the Carolinas, no, no doubt, no doubt versus surviving in Chicago. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're not grinding, you're probably not paying your bills or you're out of your apartment or Hey, on your way out, there's a parking ticket on your car yeah. and you owe somebody 20 bucks. Um, like <laughs> people don't That's have, true. people don't have the same struggle in the South. And it was kind of interesting when I would have these, these talks and I would say, Hey, like, what, what would you do with the extra money? Like if I gave you the tools, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. You just show up to work. I'm going to encourage you and motivate you to get there. But what would you do with the extra money? Would you take your family on vacation? Would you buy a nicer house? And it always floored me when people said to me, you know what, Nick, I would rather just stay off your radar. I I'm chill. The yeah. house is paid for. I don't want any extra stress. Yeah. I uh, I struggled with those responses. Yeah. I didn't understand how how does extra quality of life or you know, we're we're all materialistic to a certain degree, right? Like not money doesn't create happiness, it just gives you more opportunity to enjoy your time with your loved ones in a in a better setting or whatever it is that contributes to mm. the quality of life. So yeah. 
don't get me wrong, like materialistic things are far less significant to most people than the actual experiences that they have with their family. Like if you had a new boat, wouldn't you take your family out on the boat and have better time than just sitting at home because you can't afford to go somewhere? Right. Um, but the complacency always kind of crushed me. I didn't know. I didn't have a good rebuttal for it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I well, remember. Not, everybody's, not everyone's going to be a go-getter. Right. I know what it, I, I remember having times, though, of being like, hey, I just want to fly under the radar. I just want to be, you know, secure. But, you know, you kind of find out later on that that's really the devil, bro. That's the devil trying to keep you mediocre and keep you average. And once you understand that and you understand your true potential, you can't break through that, right? But it comes it comes down to becoming aware of that, man. And so reading the right books and understanding those things is actually my son read um, – uh, Napoleon Hill's book Outwitting the Devil and it talks about that. He's he like, started that. And that was his biggest takeaway from it. He was just like, Dad, you know, I've been thinking about it and he's like, you know, like my stepbrother Jaden, he always talks about like, you know, if I could just make a couple hundred thousand dollars, I'd be set. I'd be happy. I don't need to make any more than that. And he's like, and in this book, and, and he said, I, you know, I kind of thought that too. Like, that's a great number, right? And he's like, but in this book, it starts talking about how that's the, the how the devil starts controlling you, right? The contr he controls you by, by settling for those Comfort. once he knows he's got a man that's settling well, that's and he's a, okay with a just a couple hundred belief. thousand yeah. and that's his number and all that stuff you know it's like he's just easier to be controlled by the devil at that point because once you hit that point you're complacent you're never happy when you're complacent and when you're not happy because you're complacent it's really easy to start you know introducing bad habits like smoking or drinking or all these things right and so sometimes that once you understand that that mindset of like if I just get here, I'm happy. That's actually like one of the worst mindsets you can have because that's where you can now start becoming the most controlled, right? He relates it to the devil, obviously, in this book. But whatever it is, I, I believe in the devil and I believe in God. Yeah. So I'm like, hell, that resonates with me. I went and bought the book and read it myself. A lot of cool takeaways in that book. You're going to like that book. But um, but that's that's one thing when I hear – now when I hear people say that stuff, like, I just want to fly under the radar. Or, I just want to I just want to get here and be chill. And I don't want to be – you know, I don't want anything more than that. I just want to be okay. Whoa. That's the first thing I think of is like, oh, that's a complacency mindset, man. You're going to get controlled by the devil. You're greater than that. I mean, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Um, but I would also say that um, in some cases it's just self-limiting beliefs based upon their bias of how they grew up or the people that they surround themselves with. Like 200 grand a year might be considered in their mind like massive success based on the fact that the environment, the temperature that's set in the environment that they live is 50 grand or 80 grand or 100 would be excellent. So 200 would be double what excellent is in that environment. So one, that just shows you environment does matter because kids are dreaming and throwing out numbers that they believe is significant significant that if they touch that would realize otherwise right and so and i'm not saying that somebody's living a poor life at 200 grand a year i'm not saying that at all it's just not as much as we make it up to be in our own head like i'm you could live a great life on a couple hundred grand a year if that's your thing whatever whatever right but at the end of the day the only reason why somebody's even putting a number out there is because one, it could be a stretch goal, but they think that they might be able to do it, or it's it, it, is it all it's all a form of self limiting limiting beliefs. Right. Like if I say I want to make ten million dollars a year, the guy that makes a hundred million dollars a year thinks that I'm a fucking loser. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But 
I haven't made a hundred million dollars a year to have that type of a belief yet. Right. And so it's just like the temperature of us in terms of our income. I mean, five years ago, if somebody would have said, you know, Hey, a million dollars a year, we would have been like, Oh, that sounds great. I'd be happy with that. Mm-hmm. And then you make, over a million dollars a year and you look around you're like, where the fuck's the money? I can see a tax bill of hundreds of thousands, but where's the money? The IRS you know, but you not so much. (laughs) Are you certain I made that amount? Because I'm looking around here and I don't see that amount, you know, like, and so it just doesn't feel like what you think it will feel like when you get there. And, and, and people just need to, they, it's not like a limiting belief right now because that's a big goal for them. Yeah, but exactly. it's when when you get complacent there, you're like, oh, I did it. That's when you're like limiting yourself. That's when you're like, oh, I'm so hard to get here. I don't really want to push harder to get more. Or that's when you start kind of tapping into that complacency. You know, where- I, I feel like there's an even bigger limiting belief. So you you don't have these conversations with yourself very often or not often enough. If you, if you have these limiting beliefs, right? There there are two extremes. Some people just want to fly under the radar and be complacent. Other people are waking up in the middle of the night and freaking out when their business is solid, when they're number one and they're freaking out about staying number one and they're not living a happy life at the top of the hill either because there are a lot of hungry wolves. They're climbing the bottom of the hill. Mm-hmm. They're often hungrier than the wolf, yeah. wolf at the top of the hill. So if you're at the top of the hill, you damn better be hungrier than the wolves at the bottom Dude, of the hill. I just saw someone give an example of that the other day. You're always um, being hunted, even at the top. But they say, hey, he, he, this More dude so. was talking, and he was like, hey, there's um, uh, there's a lot. I mean, we're always told to not be in the middle, and average is bad and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. He's like, but honestly, the people at the very bottom, like, Literally, they can't get clean water. Like, their life sucks, right? But the people, the very, very top, the elite, like, take a Mark Zuckerberg or whatever, he's like, they're just as miserable as the people down here because they live under a microscope of scrutiny. They can't do anything. And, like, you know, they're just controlled by everything, shareholders and this and that. And if you say something, then you're in the media. Like, there's, like, literally, like, just as much misery as there is here. And he's like, so this whole middle gap right here, obviously, you you can choose where you want to be, but... Uh, the very top is actually not that great. And the, the very the volume, bottom is obviously not that great. And I was like, volume, ah, there's a good point to that. You know, like the volume of people that wants for you to succeed when you're at the very bottom is yeah. quite large. When you're at the very top, those same people that wanted for you to get up from the bottom are now looking at your success and they're, they can't help it. But not, not everybody gets excited about your success. Very few yeah. people get excited about your success. Maybe your mentor, somebody that's above you or somebody that's level with you if you're not in direct competition is going to be excited about your success. But majority of people that didn't know how you got there always think that stuff was granted to you, that the world is unfair, that it was easier for you. You were given more tools, you were given more ability and they will come up with whatever story they want to believe in for why they're not successful. But it's much easier for them to tell you how the world was better for you than it was for them. Even though if you were given the same, the same hand, well, they, of cards. they just, they just can't mm-hmm. believe when they experience the same pain that you felt, they can't believe that you actually made it through it. You know what I mean? They've hit a wall, right? A very, very painful wall. And they're like, hmm, he must've got lucky or he did like, I'm living this little of a life and feeling this much pain when I try to do better. Uh, there, there's got to be something else outside of just the grueling fucking hard work over a long period of time. They're trying to pinpoint something else. You got lucky because of X or somebody that you know. It has nothing to do with this motherfucker woke up at a time that most people didn't want to wake up. He worked until a time that most people didn't want to work till. And he did that 
for years and years and years and years, which is what most people don't want to do, right? So all you did is what everybody else wasn't willing to do. That's it. And then other people that aren't willing to do that want to make something up because they're not willing to do it. So you must have got lucky or had a different route than what they have because they just don't want to do that hard work. Because I'll tell you right now, it's fucking painful and it's grueling. And you'll learn a lot about yourself through all of the highs and all of the lows. But that's also part of the journey and part of the experience. And they're missing out on a vital piece saying you got luckier this, that, the other, rather than putting their head down and just doing the fucking work. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel like there's a there's a societal element of both limiting beliefs and the beliefs that uplift you. Great example, our gym. You know, when we show up in the morning, my net worth is probably the lowest out of the people that show up to the gym in the morning, and that inspires me to continue to do the same things that, that other those that are, are doing. better than me that are doing, right? So mm -hmm. I humble myself with knowing that I can have these great conversations with people that have fought the same battles, fought the same struggles. We wake up in the morning and we go through the same the same things in our brain, like very similar process. We all see each other walk around the corner of the gym fucking tired as shit. Yeah. Looking it's like, like five thirty or six <laughs> or six thirty and you're just dragging in. You're like, What's up, bro? What's up, dude? You know, like we all experience the same struggle, right? Yeah. But then you get a pool of people that, you know, maybe that's the societal norm, right? Like if you think about a typical entrepreneur versus employee mindset, right? Like you go to uh, glassdoor.com or whatever it is, and they're like, this is my specialty, this is what I do, and this is the salary range. So if I'm towards the top of that miserable salary range, this is it. This is all I'm worth. This is the top, the peak of my um, potential. Yeah. And this guy over here, he's also a pro in that same the same category, and he's making as much. We're fine. Yeah. And that's that's kind of where it stops. Like people, just whatever that group is, whatever whatever is the the size of the swamp or an ocean, do, you know. Do, do you know what I think is <laughs> right. the real problem? And I I agree with that, but I but I believe that here's what's happening in society, right? So. When you hang out, let's say, with whatever, your group of your five homies, right? Or let's say at the office, in your work environment, or whatever it is, right? The people that you, that you eat lunch with at your work environment, or whatever it is. Everybody's subconsciously analyzing the other person to see how much that person can get away with without getting reprimanded or without getting in trouble, right? And so you see me do something and get away with it. I show up five minutes late or 10 minutes late, so you show up. 10 or 15 minutes late. And what happens is usually when we're analyzing a, gr a low frequency group, what they do is they out low frequency each other on the way down. It's a race words, to the bottom. Towards, it's a race to the bottom, right? So what they do is say, he's doing the least or she's doing the least and getting away with it. I'm going to set my temperature to that setting and do what they do. Why would I do more than them? Because we're getting paid the same and they're getting away with it, right? And so then that person does what that person does. And again, because they're surrounded in that ecosystem, they're dragging each other down. It's the same concept when surrounding yourself with five people that are amazing. That person did something great and makes you wonder like, well, fuck, if they can do it, maybe I can right. do it. They did that, you know, and then you start pulling each other up. So usually in a, in a high-performing group, there's somebody that sets the standard of the bar or the temperature and everybody else is starting to increase their temperature to that individual. And 
at the lower brackets, they're cha- it's a race to the bottom, as you said, right? And I think that that's what's going on. So there are t- multiple groups of people, and you've got to be careful about who you're surrounding yourself with because one will either be dragging you down and setting a lower temperature for you of what is normal, or one will set a higher temperature for what is normal in terms of uh, performance, right, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I think that that's kind of how that works. It's just a frequency thing. You're either getting pulled up in frequency or you're getting you're pulled, pulled down, down yeah. right? And I think that that's why the word average is getting more and more average or worse on right. a day-to-day basis, right? Like what you would consider, oh, the average person, whatever, can exercise uh, an hour a day. Maybe the average now is 45 minutes. Average is getting worse and worse and worse of what the common or average person is doing or producing um, their mental health is getting worse. Their depression is getting worse. Their obesity is getting worse. Average is getting worse. And so what that means is not enough people are holding themselves accountable and really willing to dig in and do the work, right? They would rather just surround themselves with other people of low frequency to get themselves away from anybody that reminds them of something that they could have become provided they did the work, right? Well, I feel like some of it also comes from where you where you seek to find your truth, right? A lot of people, um, the world, the education system, and everything that surrounds you is not conducive of you winning in general. Mm. This world doesn't necessarily not built want for you to win. It's like not that, built it, for no. you to raise the bar. No. So unless you're seeking it out, you've got to you, fight that shit. Yeah. If you grew up in you know average community where things are average and your average person is very average. Um, I think there are different different versions of the American dream, right? Uh, and that's becoming a highly floating standard. Uh, and I think everybody everybody should have their own version of the American dream. But whatever that dream gets, um, I guess, introduced as, like whatever is your absolute high, like everybody, and it's kind of funny because when you talk to entrepreneurs and you ask them like, what, what's the peak of your imagination? Where do you want to be in life? It's a really tough question to answer yeah. you talk to somebody that's in a dead-end job like somebody that's uh putting pizza crust in the conveyor belt and the only reason i'm saying that is because i've experienced that in my life like when i <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, i didn't pull that out of my ass i just actually pulled that off my resume <laughs> yeah it's actually right on my resume so <laughs> i was trying to get a job and nobody wanted to hire me I don't know what it was. Like it was a time in the economy. Everybody was fully staffed. Nobody was paying. Minimum wage was like six fifty or seven dollars, maybe even less. And I was like, I just want a job. Like I, I'm out of school. I want a job. Like I need to do something with my summer. I didn't go to college right away because my parents didn't have the means to pay for it, and I was still trying to figure things out. So I, I needed a job. And I was very fortunate to be able to live with my parents, not pay them rent. They they housed me. They fed me. They provided me with more than more than a lot of people get. So I'm super mm. grateful for that. So I had to find my own path. And the very first job of putting pizzas in the conveyor belt, so it's just through temp agencies. Uh, this is like, I don't know, maybe 4.30 in the morning in Wisconsin. I'm walking across this dark, cold warehouse. And the folks that surround me, they kind of look like, I don't know, no offense to the, I, I hope that nobody takes this personally, but I'm just, this is experience inside my head. I'm trying mm. to make it cinematic, right? right? I'm walking around and the people that are showing up for the shift, it's 4.30, I don't expect for anybody to have a big smile on their face, but you could just tell like miseries in the air. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I show up to this conveyor belt and it's moving fucking fast. Like yeah. 
I, I'm not ready for this brutal environment in my head. And I'm, you know, you slap the pizza on the conveyor belt. There's a certain order of things that goes it's like a, a company that makes frozen pizzas. Yeah. And I tried to have small talk with the lady to the right of me, with the guy to the left of me. And they're like, get the f- back to work. You're missing it. And I'm like, Hey, like, sorry, I'm, I'm moving as fast as I can here. I just, I, this is my first 15 minutes on the job ever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not asking for a break. I'm just trying to connect with you on a human level. Yeah. And I'm like, Hey, how long have you been here? Like 12 years. I'm up to 1250 an hour now. Now hurry up. I walked out. Yeah. I walked off that conveyor belt. Yeah. I lasted at that job for 30 minutes because of, I guess the mental aspect of it. And some people will say, you know, I'm soft. I should have stayed there. I should have hardened myself. But no. right there and then I knew that this is, this is my biggest fear, right? Yeah. Is to ever have to be put in the position of a, a robotic position, right? Something that's repetitive. And if yeah. you talk and communicate with other humans, it decreases your performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, a large part of my soul died for that period of time. And that was, that was probably one of the biggest uh, inspiring things because if you've never seen yeah. how, like how hard the, the bottom of the trash hold could be, you would never appreciate the top. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's just like what you said where you're like, the world isn't built to, you know, create winners. Right. But we are built to win. Everybody's right. built to win, but the world challenges that. Right. So the bottom line is like, if you're a person that realizes that and you think bigger, you think you're greater than that, then you are. Right. And that's 100%. just how it is. Like I did the same thing at Walmart distribution, bro. That was like the best job you could get in St. George for a while. And I was like, okay, I'm a brand new dad. Yeah. You know, it's like right before I started getting into sales and I was just trying to get out of construction because I hated working in the hot sun. But dude, I didn't like being around all these people. And, and like what you said, Zombie like mode. I hate to say it, but it's like, bro, I'm better than what these people are. My the life I want is better than the life these people are living here. Like I heard a, a conversation at the lunchroom, okay, in the Walmart distribution, and it was like, oh, if I could work up to being a truck driver and get my CDL, like I could make thirty grand a year. And like, even though that was clear back in year two thousand, I was like, I don't want to be. I don't want to work my ass off for ten years to become a truck driver to make thirty, dude. I just don't want that. So I walked out too, bro. But you got unlimited breaks. You could go grab a cup of water whenever you want. We didn't get that shit. I might have fucking took you up on that job just to hit every gas (laughs) station. Oh, I hated that conversation, dude. I was like, already my fingers were bleeding from swiping cardboard all day by labeling boxes and throwing them on the conveyor belt. And we was getting written up for production. Like, you were allowed to talk to other people. If you didn't lift properly, if you you lift, but in order to hit production, you had to lift them properly because you got to throw these boxes. They give you a stack of labels just before lunchtime, bro, like a freaking foot high. And so you're like, if, I'm not going to hit production if I don't throw these boxes faster. Then they write you up for not lifting properly. Then they write you up for talking to other people. I was like, screw this shit, dude. So I walked out too. Yeah. Sounds like a fucking dream. (laughs) Dude. You were living the dream for a minute. I had nightmares, actually. It's still a dream. Many, many jobs past Mm. the pizza place. You know, some of them I've held for a few months. Some of them I've held for over a year. Speedy Delivery Warehouse is a local carrier. I was there. Uh, sorting packages. I mean, I was, so as a kid, I was happy to get whatever job I could get, but that was a third shift job. You show up to a conveyor belt, three bays open, and all the deliveries come into a T. They come on a, on a roller. So people are unloading these trucks. And as you stand at the T, imagine like the top down view of the conveyor belt and you have to read labels really, really fast and figure out in your head geographically, Mm. if they go to the right, to the left or down the middle, and you're doing this for eight hours. (laughs) <laughs> you're DJing these boxes, you know, 
and you come home and when like a third shift, so you're working through the night and you wake up like when, when other people are waking up, you're going to bed. I had nightmares. I had nightmares like the entire time that I slept until it was time to go back to work. Yeah. I saw the conveyor belt. So people do go postal for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think it is? Um, why, why, why is it that some people can be there and be like, this isn't okay. I want better. But some people are just okay with it. You know what I mean? Cause we all, we all come from rough backgrounds. You know what I mean? Like the people that are working there, they don't come from much. We didn't come from much, you know, but why is it that we're able to dream bigger and, and chase that when other people are just like, they're okay with being complacent. Like we talked about earlier. You know what I mean? I, I, I honestly can't tell you why I've always just thought bigger, even in my childhood upbringing, like this ain't okay. In, in I my, want more than this. Well, I, think, I want more I think, than that. I think, I think I was thinking about my kids before I even had kids. Like, yeah, I don't well, want to raise my yeah. kids like this. I, I think every human on the planet has a dream and has hope. I think that that's why they don't go blow their brains out when they're at a shitty spot. They're hoping for change. They're not willing to work for it, but that hope is there. They're hoping something happens, but... The only way that change will happen is if, if they make a change. And I think that they, 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 there's so many distractions in the world that like you can't, you can go get your dopamine somewhere else outside of work or whatever. Like you'll deal with low frequency misery and then hurry and go check out and not really analyze self or life because of all the distractions. You can go throw on a movie or Netflix or this, that, the other. And then you don't really have to analyze. I think it really, maybe you were self-aware of your environments at a young age, mm. right? And I don't know if people just become self-aware or when they try to, they just don't like what they see and they realize it will take work. And then maybe just they don't want to do the work. But it sounds like when I was but young. But they are working. They're working their ass off in a factory. I, you know what I mean? It's is, like, it, is it fair to say just not, that they're scared of the different work? Success in general? Or something. It's an uptick though. You have to have an uptick. In but, but success in general is about how you feel, right? And I feel like there's a, and tell me if maybe your your heads think differently, but to me, success is 100% anxiety driven because any moment in your business as an entrepreneur, business owner, the second you feel comfortable, like I relay a lot of things to riding bullet bikes. I used to race bikes. And if you're on a bullet bike in traffic or on a track, the second you get comfortable, shit always happens. That's when you grab a handful of front brake and you're trying to save your life. The second your brain travels somewhere in this like, almost like a trance. You know, sometimes you drive your car and this happens when driving a car on a highway too. You're on a long trip, you're just transing. Next thing, you're, you're slamming your brakes and you're waking up to this. Now, if you're running a business, you cannot allow for that to happen because that will turn into a train wreck. So I feel... and. In my mind, success in general is anxiety driven. So the low frequency and the reason why my brain went all the way around that, because I've seen a lot of people in real estate, like, you know, time has been, the times have been great. There's been no better time to be an agent when everybody has infinite access to credit mm -hmm. and there's funny money circulating. So everybody has become an agent and becoming a brand new real estate agent through cycles in the economy, it could mean many different things. A lot of it is the grassroots of running a business. And a lot of people will get into it and they even become successful. They get a moderate level of success. You know, maybe they're making, I don't know, 300,000, half a million a year. They're, they're, they're making it into a career. But I have seen people from that position go back to jumping on somebody's team and 
some have even stepped out of their role and became a transaction coordinator or stepped into being somebody's assistant. Like they're still, they have a great employee mindset and they could have killed it on their own. And often those are the people you want to hire, by the way. Those are the people that have great work ethic and they know how to make it. And those I think are the hires that you could spend majority of your money because they're going to produce tenfold. I know so many agents that are on somebody else's team that carry the entire team on their back, but yeah. they get the comfort that the, the end of the day, they're not the ones responsible. So, and I don't know. So, you know, that, that medium, that, that middle ground where, where people operate, like not at the very bottom, not at the very top, but kind of the general middle where they're mm -hmm. happy. Yeah. There, there could be part truth to having happiness because yeah, they're not at the very top of the mountain, but there are fewer people that want for them to die. And there's always somebody at the top that's feeding them a little bit of that business where they don't have the same anxiety in the middle of the night, trying to figure out where they're going to get business tomorrow. Right. Right. That's mm. my theory. Mm. I think we should tell him a little bit about you, dude. So Nick, I mean, we didn't even really talk about it, but he is in real estate. He owns your own property management company. I know that, right? But what other things do you got going too? I know yeah, you're an you investor. investor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, any, anything and everything real estate, you get you Pretty and much. your wife tag team and handle business, right? We've got, uh, we've got a lot of irons in the fire. So we're, uh, we're building some spec homes. Uh, we do property management. We got into property management for um, a couple of our other clients. I don't want to say we got our, arm twisted into it, but we, <laughs> but you did, <laughs> but we did. He, he doesn't want to um, say it, but he did. <laughs> yeah. so, and, you know, my experience in real estate in general, you, you typically like the career path in the very beginning, when somebody gets into real estate as a brand new agent and they go through the pre-licensing course, I'm sure the same thing with mortgage, that course teaches you how to arguably not get sued. Yeah. But if that's all that you have finished, and you have no outside life experience, business experience, it is a, you're not prepared, you're not equipped, you're not yeah. ready for your first deal. So a lot of people follow the path of somebody else being there, some kind of mentor, or maybe they jump on a team and then it kind of runs in perpetuity. The most difficult uh, aspect of any brand new business is lead gen and trying mm -hmm. to wear all these many hats that, that makes it more complicated. So when I first jumped into this business, I wanted to explore all aspects so that I could be that much more valuable and that much harder to kill. Uh, I guess at the end of the day, any kind of uh, physical strength or mental, mental strength, anything that we put uh, proactively into our system makes us harder to kill, right? That's the process of the evolution in general. Yeah. Um, so we started getting into property management with uh, some of our clients that wanted, they had a great experience purchasing their investment property in St. George and they wanted for us to, to manage it because they said, you know what? I'm like, look, I, I don't know anything about property management. Like, no, I know that you not knowing anything, you will still do a better job because you're going to teach yourself. So that level, <laughs> and it was at the time one of my, still one of my, one of my greatest clients. We've done a lot of business together. And for me to fail him and not manage his property correctly, mm -hmm. not show up and do the inspections, not figure out how to do this, it was, uh, you know, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. Right. And my other goal in getting into property management was being able to hire remote property managers in other areas where now if I'm doing this, this sets the bar. That's the minimum. I'm, I'm not the brightest. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the fastest. I'm not the greatest, but I know what I'm capable of. And if I can do it, you should be able to do it too. So that was my approach to other property management companies in other states that we've hired. And it's kind of crazy have you guys ever had to hire a professional in your own field? Hire a professional? Yeah, absolutely. Like in your own field, something that you do, 
And going back, Trevor, to our original conversation about like poking holes in your performance yeah, and being yeah. the hardest judge, like yeah. the previous videos, like, you're, oh man, I suck here. I feel like we're all our hardest judges and you always, there's no greater pressure than knowing your own flaws and you know your own flaws all the time and you carry them on your shoulders and you're like, yeah, I'm not, I could be better. I could always be better. Yeah. And then you hire somebody and you're like, what? Is this, this is your best? Okay. Yeah. That's when you hear people be like, man, I wish I had a machine where I could duplicate this employee or this person, <laughs> or I, could I wish I could duplicate myself. Like a lot of, you'll hear a lot of high achievers say that uh, because they get frustrated surrounding themselves with individuals that, uh, that don't hold themselves to that same regard, right? Um, and that's one of the hardest things to do in terms of managing, right? Or having employees is understanding that their goals and their dreams and their own limitations are theirs. They're, yours are yours, right? You might not have limitations. They might have them at this point. And it's up to you to massage that and work that and figure out whether you can build and mold them and grow them or whether they just, you know, are a, a light bulb that kind of went out through the system, yeah. <laughs> you know? So anyways, go ahead. So I, I struggled with that. And I had, um, so in my, in my corporate journey with Verizon, I kind of bounced around the country and it was, it was awesome. It was great to get experience from different areas. And like we were talking earlier, different, different groups of people, like we're such social animals that your surroundings truly kind of set the bar for what's acceptable and what's not. And the performance where, you know, do we, and I find myself most comfortable in St. George. The reason why I got into real estate to begin with is because I didn't want to leave Southern Utah. I've, I've lived all over the world. I've lived all over the States and I haven't found for me, it's the people like mm. here. There are so many driven individuals. If you look at our, at our microeconomic bubble, how can anybody afford to survive here? Yeah. You it drive. Doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, it dude. shows like our median income is like under 50 grand a year here, but yeah. our average median house is now like 600,000. Right. Every fucking <laughs> SUV. What is our, the, me, what's our median a, home price a, here a, now? Every SUV. Median home price is like 575 right now. Yeah. yeah. Every SUV is like 100 grand yeah. on the road. Yeah. You're like, what the fuck? I always wonder that here. I'm you like, know, how do people, how does everybody have 100 grand with? And I've had clients yeah. that moved here. So I have a lot of clients that are retiring here and they, they brought uh, a large amount of wealth, real estate in general, like especially when you look at the higher end market. This is not not the amount of new wealth that was created over the last three years that all of a sudden, you know, if you look at St. George and our, our metrics for homes that sold between two and $5 million in 2020 and 2021, it's insane. Yeah. But none of that wealth was really created. It was a transfer of wealth, right? People are coming to this area because they appreciate what we have to offer in terms of quality of life, crime rate, uh, overall safety, beauty. beauty, things to do. And they want to get away from the madness. So they're transferring their equity that they had somewhere else into this area. And those clients are asking me, they say, hey, there's so many beautiful high-end homes. And, you know, maybe not high-end by L.A. standards, but certainly the, the price range nice. is yeah. much higher. Yeah. Like, and that, yeah. that segment is growing. How do people afford that? And I found that in order to live in this community and, again, maybe a shallow limits that's set by me, but everybody defines their happiness differently, right? But I find that to avoid misery, okay, to live here and avoid misery, to be in that happy status where you're not, you know, you're not, uh, you're not counting pennies in your account, you have to be on a pretty high level of success. Yeah. And I found that for some reason, this area attracts a lot of people that are very like minded. Um, so I wanted to stay here. And I realized that long before I got into real estate, 
Yeah. Uh, even just meeting people in my past career and talking to people, I'm like, I, I felt the pressure. Uh, yeah. My my former boss was telling me that I was overpaid, and I kept asking him, did, did you see my Bentley on the way in, or did somebody scratch my jet? Like, I don't understand how I'm overpaid because I'm living here, and I'm I'm counting my dollars. Like, I'm I'm okay. I'm, I'm making I'm overpaid. It. I didn't eat yeah. fucking breakfast today, my dude. I'm fasting and not by choice. <laughs> it's by an economical situation, dog. <laughs> you know? So, um, no, St. George is beautiful. St. I mean, born and raised... You know, and mm-hmm. I, and I, and you know, there's, a, this is always going to be home base for us. Right. Um, you know, we've, we, I know Kel wants to have other places around the world or whatever, but I'm sure he's always going to have a home here yeah. right, because of the beauty, but that doesn't necessarily mean anybody listening on the podcast needs to fucking keep crowding us. You don't need to hit Nick up and buy a house. <laughs> like, we ain't going to stop him, man. But yes, if you do, he's a good guy to do I would it see with, all these arguments know? on Facebook when they're like talking about new resorts they're putting it out there by two Ocon and people are just like, Oh, this is turning into LA or this is turning into, you know, whatever. And they're like, I moved here to get away from this. And I'm like, well then keep moving, dude. Yeah. Like this is keep be bopping. We're around, not going to be able to yeah. stop the growth yeah. here, dude. People want to be here. It's yeah. beautiful. It's like, you know, f- safe to raise families. It's family oriented. There's all this outdoor recreation. There's not a nightlife, but, but so what do you, what do you see happening one. at this point? What's your, you know what I mean? Like, Obviously, you don't have a crystal ball, but you, you've been in the game for a long enough time. You sell homes, you help people buy homes, you property manage, you invest yourself. Um, what What's your take on it? What are your investor clients currently doing? What is, what is your mindset in terms of you as an investor and you as an agent right now in just the situation that we're all in? That's a great question. I feel like, well, for one, a lot of people try to wrap their head around the future. My crystal ball has been broken ever since I started. Um, I want to address Kale's point first about people yeah, moving please. into the area and like you, you see the amount of shit talking on social media. Like, hey, no more, you know, if you if no you support outsiders, or no more outsiders. If you support build. certain things, don't yeah. support other things. We don't want you here. I, this is just a portion of a story. I, I don't remember the whole long story, but this is. I think it was some some kind of proverb. I don't know where it came from. Maybe Russians say a lot of really bold, very direct stuff. But there's this elder sitting by the gate into the city. You know, think about like the elder, the older times. And uh, this this young traveler comes up to him and he says, "Hey, how's the city? How are the people inside?" And he's like, "They're shitty. They're thieves. They're ugly. They won't welcome you there. It's going to be horrible." And okay, so he carries on. And then another guy comes up to him, and this guy is just sitting by the gate, and he asks him, "Hey, how how's the city? How are the how are the people you know in the city below the mountain by the gate? Like the most incredible people, family oriented, super friendly. They will build you up, and they will take you to the next level." And this guy, third person bystander, was like, "Hey, I just saw you say two completely different stories to two different guys. Why?" He's like, "Well, it's what I saw in them." because the world will treat them exactly by what they bring into the community. So I find this often, like on our YouTube channel, people will put things in the comments and I try not to take sides because I respect everybody's individual opinion of their experience. Like some people love, absolutely love to live in some rural town in Wisconsin and that's what they believe in. Others want to live in L.A. No matter how crazy things are, they love living in L.A. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. friends that love living yeah, in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And it has their own unique um, experience. And I find that a lot of that feedback 
people get angry on both sides, but at the end of the day, the old guy by the gate was right. Yeah. But you know, as far um, as far as the future of the real estate industry goes, I think it's it's pretty pretty interesting right now. Yeah. So we're. Well, yeah. <laughs> that seems to be that yeah. seems to be the topic uh, in a lot of uh, different discussions. So, for one, uh, we're seeing uh, interest rates, you know, kind of unpredictable, and the Fed is hinting that it is possible for these hikes to take place by one more point. Now, median cost uh, of home ownership across the nation is over four hundred thousand. Okay, so. Over the last few months, like when we went, I had somebody recently submitted an offer on, on one of our um, on one of our listings, and they had a pre-approval from like February twenty seventh. <laughs> well, I should have paid closer attention. And what happened is they no longer qualified to purchase uh, using a conventional loan, and they had to switch to the FHA. And the property just wasn't in a good enough condition to to sell. It was a fixer home. And an FHA loan would raise so many red flags; it'd just be a waste of time for all mm. parties involved. So, and what what that actually signifies is, if you look at the interest rates and people's buying power going from that environment of two point eight, two point five percent to now five and five and a half, realistically, mm-hmm. average consumer lost over two hundred thousand in their affordability power. So, if you were looking at the homes in the six fifties when people were saying, hey, these interest rates are not gonna last forever. Guess what, now you're looking at the homes in the 450s. And the golden rule in real estate is you never take somebody shopping unless you have their pre-approval. For one, you want for them to know what they're looking at. For two, in the very beginning of my career, if you take somebody out looking at homes in the 650s and you realize that they can only afford in the 450s, now you're talking about one last garage bay and it's gonna need a remodel. Everything everything you show them is now shit because they they have a bias of what they thought that they might be able to get. And it happens with first time home buyers, somebody that's been renting and whatever they're looking at might still be better than their rental, but they have already seen that better home. And mm. now you're not going to impress them with anything you show them. So the market shift is happening partly because of that new buyer syndrome is happening to the buyers that are still in the process of thinking about moving. So we went from having multiple offers, you know, hundred to 200 grand over asking in some cases, uh, just a few months ago to now builders making concessions, uh, paying closing costs. And our average number shifted from, you know, average uh, list to close ratio was at 102% just a month ago, meaning that deals happen in the in the range where somebody had to offer at least 2% over asking price to go under contract. Like that was mm-hmm. the average for the market. Now we're at 98% as of the end of June. We haven't seen the numbers for July yet, but I would, I would imagine that that number is definitely had it down. down. The biggest challenge is affordability crisis because if if you can't afford something and you're able to stay put, I mm-hmm. think that's going to happen more. If you have cash and you're looking at this, you're kind of watching it and you're seeing, you know, where where is the bottom? Right. Are we a lot of people right. are talking about 08, a lot of people are fear-mongering even further than that, and it's not necessarily all fear-mongering. There are so many aspects that we have yeah. never seen before. Yeah. If, as somebody that lived in Russia and seen some similar things, not necessarily in the housing market, but just overall the madness that goes on in the country, if I told you that this is what the future holds five years ago, we'd both look at me and say, dude, no possible. There's absolutely no way that we're going to be experiencing what we're seeing 
if you just turn on the TV right now. Like, no way. No right. way that could happen in the U.S. So I think that wild factor is keeping everybody on their toes. But at the end of the day, um, I was, I don't remember whose podcast it was, somebody way smarter than me was watching it and he <laughs> said, <laughs> you know, uh, with that dynamic too, like there, there are people that, that don't quite have to make the move. They're going to sit on the sideline. That's going to happen. Real estate is cyclical. Everything goes through cycles. Um, the number, the pool of buyers, the affordability, all these things play in a, a factor. But no matter what, somebody somewhere is closing an ASCO today. Yeah. And that concept goes out to all the home buyers, to all the home sellers and all the investors that are listening to this podcast. So if you think about it, Folks that have to move, folks that have to relocate for for work, folks that have to go places, and whether they're leaving Utah, coming to Utah, uh, we know there's parts of California where deals are still happening over asking with multiple offers. So the first rule of real estate, the markets where location wasn't so opportune, like we were buying some investment properties in Fayetteville, North Carolina, great city to go on vacation especially if you're in the military. Otherwise, not so much. Uh, it's, you know, it's a good, no offense to people that live in Fayetteville, but it's not the number one destination. Mm -hmm. Like not as many people are moving there because they want to. People are moving there because they have to. That market, much like the rest of the country, appreciated by nearly 45%. Yep. And those were the markets where the values began to pull back much more rapidly than anywhere else. And even though that market mm -hmm. is a lot more affordable than Southern Utah, for instance, or California, right. and places where people want to be, People will continue to buy real estate. People were, you know, places where people have to be. People will also continue to buy real estate. So what we see with a lot of our buyers right now is, for one, it's actually a plus. Like, if you're comfortably able to buy real estate, either as, A, an asset that's going to make sense for you in the long run, right? It's harder to make sense of cap rates. But if you're selling a piece of real estate in a state where, you know, maybe you're afraid of rent controls or maybe you're afraid of government overreach with the things that you could do with that property in the future. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the rational move is to move that asset somewhere where it's safe. It may not be cash flowing at all or maybe as much. It still has to have business sense. But if you look at the longevity, like period of time, like if we talk about inflation or hyperinflation in this case, the, the rents that you're receiving, that purchase price is most likely going to run away. Because when we were talking about the race to the bottom in the prices, there is a bottom, there's, there's a limiter that's going to apply upward pressure. And that limiter is residential new construction. If we look at the cost of land, if we look at the cost of fuel, mm -hmm. cost of labor, cost of supplies. What it costs to just basically build it new. Right. Yeah. And that replacement cost, you know, if you look at Southern Utah, and don't quote me on this, but one of my business partners um, and I talked about this and we're like, you know, what, what if you wanted to build a 2000 square foot home in St. George, I don't know, 1800 square foot home in St. George and make zero profit on it? What if you wanted to just do a great thing and build somebody a house or maybe you're building it for yourself, you're a builder, right? At cost. At cost. And that, that raw cost is well over 450,000 yeah. and that's your raw cost. Yeah. And now if we think about it, no builder is going to build a home unless there's a profit because the mm -hmm. investors need to get paid. They have holding costs and, you know, they're in a the business of, of making money at the end of the day. Right. Um, so these costs are ultimately, in my opinion, going to limit with how low things will go. Because if, if major builders are starting to pull back right now and sit on some of their lots, uh, I've had uh, a couple talks with a couple guys that own framing companies and they said, yeah, we had, we were planning on building out like 50 more lots and this builder decided to say, Hey, we're going to just stay put right now because times are a little bit uncertain. 
and we don't want to produce a more expensive product and lose money on it. Right. Uh, a lot of these builders survived through 2008 when they were losing money on their lots. So a lot of people in the industry, and some people are going to get scarred. You know, people that have to sell are, you know, if they're up against the wall, you're going to see some some crazy deals. But in general, and another interesting point too is the overall demand on the market. So. 98% uh, of all statistics are made up right there on the spot. So it, it's hard to <laughs> hard to believe in some of these stats, especially when we don't exactly know what is the total population of the U.S. right now. We're not going to get into a discussion of the borders, but nonetheless, everybody needs a place to stay, right? Everybody right. needs a housing unit. But even not factoring that in, uh, there is some discussion that we're to the tune of 10, 10 million total units shy of just meeting the demand for housing. Yeah. So supply is low. Supply is low. And our supply, as of this morning, I think in St. George, we're at about between just southern Utah, like uh, Washington County, including Hurricane, but not going any further north, like not expanding too far out, is 977 listings. Yeah. And just a few months ago, we were somewhere around like 180. So the supply is definitely growing. A lot more listings are going back on the market. People are getting cold feet, mm -hmm. they're backing out. But at the end of the day, if you, you were think to it's cold feet back and out, or do you think it's some of the interest rate shit? That, some of the interest that, rates, like they can't cover that gap or can't make that payment now. People can't make the payment. I've seen people, and I've construction loans that don't have their long term closed. And we we actually work with a number of lenders that uh, do construction, like new construction loans, right now, and they can lock them for up to a year. Mm. So interest rates are not amazing right now, but they could be way less amazing a year from now. So you yeah. get the lowest rate guaranteed. And you go up to that. And, yeah. you know, so many people in our industry, this is the part that I dislike the most, is so many agents right now will give you an absolute bullshit line about, well, you know, we used to close deals at 14% interest rates. I remember when I bought my first house. None of it is relevant to anybody that's looking to buy or invest right now because yeah. that was a long time ago and you bought that property for 100000 Yeah. Well, guess what? Taxes used to be like 80 or 90% in like the 60s or 70s. Mm -hmm. Right. So, like, th that doesn't mean it's still not painful to pay 40% or 30%. Why do people still want to get it down, right? So it doesn't matter. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if, if it doesn't matter what it has been. It matters what you're experiencing in your situation as of today. So bringing up, oh, back in the day, they used to, da, 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 it's not going to help you and serve you today. Like, they've seen a different market, and you're going to try to say, oh, well, there's, this is well, what it used to be in the market right. that you weren't in right. was this. It's just you a know. selling point so they can yeah. help them justify. Yeah. You know, <laughs> buy, buy the property, son, my day. And I think, you know, a I part of this, a part of this, like we're not seeing yeah, this crazy frenzy. for 10 grand on a house. I'll pay fucking 14% <laughs> if I get a house for 10 G's too, exactly. motherfucker. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Warren Buffett still living in his 50 grand house. I'm like, fucking pay 50% interest. Like who, Patrick, who Patrick Bet David posted a, a picture of a home for sale back in 19, um, 70s and it was like cute little float, no, like 7500 wow. yeah oh wow and uh and he was like what is the first thing you think of when when you see this and everybody's just commenting like inflation this that blah 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 and uh anyway i commented i was like my thought is buy a shit ton right now because we're gonna be saying the same thing in 50 more years you know our yeah. kids are right they're gonna be like damn i'm Dad was got this house for 700 G's. Can you believe that Can you now? believe the medium household was 600 back then as you're looking at the low-end houses of 
uh, 900 uh, uh, to a million dollars, right? There's always going to be inflation. 100%. There's always going to be interest rates fluctuating. It was interesting. I uh, <laughs> I just remember this story. I was, I've lived through hyperinflation once before in my lifetime, and it was so crazy. I was still, you know, I was still a small child. It was, it was like 10 years old by the time we left Russia, but the things that were happening there were insane. So there was a, financial term uh devaluation that's when the the government prints new currency and they add two zeros to it and there were there were notes up to i want to say five thousand rubles like you have so many zeros on these notes Mm -hmm. and you go to the grocery store to buy a loaf of bread and you're just giving these thousands of rubles and it felt funny to me as a kid because i went through that transition and the, the other the other thing to consider right now somebody that's sitting on a bunch of cash you know, do I, do I buy some gold? Do I buy a piece of real estate? And what's going to happen to the future value? Or do I hold on to this cash? So this is, this is an example that sticks with me forever. I just talked to my mom about it because obviously I, I didn't know what was going on at the time. But my dad um, at the time was, uh, he's an artist. So he was doing uh, this massive project. He was decorating a stage for a play or something like that. And he was owed around 3,000 rubles. And at the time... Uh, that was, uh, you know, th- those the former, everything was exchanged in rubles. After that, Russian people have learned and they do a lot of business in U.S. dollars because they had more faith in the U.S. currency than they did in their own. So my dad was owed 3,000 rubles. My parents were in the process of moving. He completed the job. It was excellent. Nobody could have done it better. And the, the person that owed him the money wouldn't pay him. He was late on the payment, late on the payment. And perhaps that guy kept his ear to the wind more so than my dad did at the time. So by the time he paid him, literally this happened overnight. The government rolled out new currency. And at the time, the exchange, the Forex exchange was one-to-one. So it was an equivalent of like $3,000, U.S. dollars in America in 1992. Mm. Except in Russia, the buying power was probably still a little bigger. And by the time he got paid, two extra zeros were added to the currency, and it was an equivalent of $300 instead of $3,000. And instead of furnishing my parents' new apartment, they were able to buy some groceries with that money. Damn. So this is, unfortunately, I feel like the direction that we're headed right now, unless we see something crazy happen um, with reversing these things, and, you know, Fed is dialing back, uh, you know, they're, they're doing quantitative tightening, which is what they're trying to do to prevent that. But I'm not sure that they just showed up in time, you know, with mm-hmm. so much PPP and stimulus money being printed and we're, we're still printing money and they're dialing back on the abundance of credit. So I'm really hoping that this doesn't happen. But the only way for sure to prevent yourself from experiencing what my parents had experienced is whatever whatever you have stashed you need to invest it in businesses. You need to invest it in real estate. You need to invest it in hard assets. They're generating cash flow or they're keeping their value. And as things get crazier, in my opinion, shelter over gold. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a financial advisor, but you hear so many different ideas with people advising, you know, well, buy gold or buy freedom seeds or buy whatever. I mean, I think you should have a little bit of everything, but investing into something that's still going to be there and is possibly, or almost certainly will appreciate in value over time uh, I feel like it's a safe strategy. Yeah, I think so as well. Yeah, dude. I mean, it's uh, it's definitely you know no like uh, um, like Nick said, nobody has a crystal ball. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows what's going to happen or, or or how it's going to happen. 
But the one thing that you have the ability to control is the actions that you take today or the actions that you take tomorrow. And the real question is, is are you actually controlling what you can control and letting whatever chips fall where they may on the things that you can't? But you can't bitch and complain about things that are unforeseen or something that you can't control when you're not even an individual that's taking control of the actions that you have the ability to control. So yet you want to complain about something that you can't control, but yet you avoid the things that you can, which are your actions, right? So are you becoming more valuable as an individual? Are you thinking more clearly? Are you surrounding yourself with the right people? Are you reading the right information so that you become forged for whatever the situation is? Work on self so that that self is a better version of you that's going into whatever the situation is, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's ugly. Wouldn't you want to be a better version of you in any one of those situations? Of course. And I think that that's what people need to be focusing on right now is more so than the predicting of what's going to happen or the doom and the gloom or we might pay $100 for a fucking loaf of bread, which could be a thing. Who fucking knows? Again, nobody has a crystal ball. I don't give a fuck. All I'm going to do is fucking lay down a solid-ass fucking day today so that w- w- whatever happens, I will be more prepared than the person next to me. That's the most important thing. What are you doing to be more prepared than everybody else? Right. Well, with, with any investment vehicle, some people may disagree with me, but if you look at the results, and this is, this is going to probably start a topic for discussion, if you look at investing in the stock market, most people on average of the dollar cost average their investment and if the market is up or the market is down they're continuing to commit to that investment whether it's stock or real estate if you're committing to purchasing a couple properties per year maybe it's one property maybe it's one property every couple years as long as you're continuing to do that consistently over time you know it's a long-term investment like i just posted a video on this and i was talking about this and you know if, if you're thinking about buying a home right now whether it's an investment maybe a quick flip maybe you want to park some money somewhere and you're planning on the, the duration of your ownership in this property is like less than less than two years maybe a year and a half or a year it's pretty risky don't do it if you plan on holding it for 10 or 15 just about any time in the u.s history you you get a much larger window to maximize on that opportunity you could ride up and then sell it at the top and in any event you if you can reasonably hold it and own it and justify the reason for that purchase you're going to be all right if you're making an irrational move well it's never a good time to make an irrational move sometimes you get lucky you know some people that were saying hey in 2020 shit's gonna hit the fan don't buy real estate and anybody that bought in 2020 and sold in 22 made probably at least over a hundred grand on their investment minimum many times you know i was i was one of the ones in 2020 i was like no way something's got a fucking turn here and it just kept going up and up and up and so again my crystal ball was broke too you know what i mean so who knows like if if we think what we think but we've thought what we've thought before and we've been wrong so many times what what does our wrong now look like potentially you know what i mean so I w- again, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do too much outside of the fact of making sure that you have the ability to control what you can, which are your actions. Um, secondly, I just think a lot of people are probably saying, okay, well, the safe bet is taking money and and having more control over it. Like if you've got a large amount of cash, paying cash for a property or something like that, at least that's money or distributing it. 
between multiple properties, right? If you've got 500 grand, you put 100, 100, 100, whatever it is, a lot of people are just putting their cash in, like you said, hard assets, something that they have more so the ability to control rather than the banks or a system. You know, in that case, you have loans on it, but still you can determine whether you want to rent it, whether you want to live in it, whether you want to Airbnb it, you know, however you want to, however you want to work it. But um, before we end here, uh, how would individuals reach out to you, connect with you if they've got questions in regards to, you know, real estate or investing or Southern Utah, or if they're a real estate agent and just want to make sure that they're doing, dotting the I's and crossing the T's because you do a lot of different shit outside of the normal, you know, agents, so to speak, right? Like you, you know, you, you, you run it like a business. You don't run it like you're a single just agent out there trying to get a hundred or 200 grand a year commission. You're operating a high, high level, uh, you know, real estate portfolio for yourself as well as helping other people do it for themselves. I, I appreciate the shout out yeah. and the kind words, man. Um, see my, my goal in this business I came from a family of educators and I never admired uh, in, in a traditional sense of what educators do. But at the end of the day, that's what I implement the most in my business and that's what generates repeat business. So the easiest way to get a hold of me and learn a little bit about real estate, our local environment, what's affecting our market, what is selling, property tours, things of that nature, just go to youtube.com forward slash St. George, St. George. It's a pretty cool channel name, huh? You got that, huh? <laughs> I, got that. I guess yeah. that's what happens when you're the early bird catching the worm, <laughs> when you've been doing it for years and years, when everyone probably thought you were an idiot for doing it. It was tough. I yeah. looked at some of my previous videos. If you dig back in that channel, you could see me just learning the process. So yes. uh, my contact see information is all over that channel. <laughs> Not sharing information. You can see him learning. That is what you can see. How do, you, how do we spell your last name? Because um, it took me for a long a long time to learn how to pronounce it. It's Rostopchin. Rostopchin. But I always I And that's always all my social it. media accounts, too. If anybody wants to reach out, Facebook, Instagram, if you've got any questions at all, I'm, I'm happy to bring you value. And to Trevor's point, I think going forward and, and perpetually in life, you have to do if, if you do one accountability session with yourself, mm. no matter what form it comes in, what value did I bring today? Yeah, uh, it it stemmed from like my earlier education and, and even in corporate America. You ask yourself at the end of the day, like, if, are, am I worth am I worth keeping? What what value did I bring to people? And that that goes across all facets of life. I think it goes in your in your business. You know, if you're reflecting your performance in your business, what would would I hire me? What value did I bring to people today? Yeah. In your family, with your with your wife, with your kids with your relatives, with your loved ones, if as long as you're bringing value, you're worth keeping around. Mm, I, I, I agree. I, I always that. enjoy our conversations at the gym. I know Nick, he always follows economics close. He's a numbers guy. He pays close attention to things. And so I always enjoy talking about real estate with you and what's coming down the pipe or what's good investments right now. I know we've looked at some investments together, like that one out in Canab. And yeah. so I know, I know that you're a smart guy. And so anybody that reaches out to you and you're willing to help them, I know that they'll get a lot of value out of you. Um, but, uh, but yeah, go check out his YouTube channel and connect with him on social media. Guys, make sure you're sharing this episode with anybody that you feel as though they can get value from it. Other than that, make sure you're rating and reviewing the podcast and kicking some ass. See you next week. Peace. Yeah.